0: you're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle for other resources more information about this sermon series or to connect with us visit our website www.trinityws.com hello please remain standing for the reading of God's word my name is Joan and I will be reading from Matthew 14 22 to 33, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds and after he had dismissed the crowds he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came he was there alone But but the boat by this time was long away from the land beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. The word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Hey, good morning, friends. It's great to see all of you and so glad that you've joined us as we come together to meet with God today. And I want to pray as we begin to dig into this word together. By the way, my name is Joel and I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. Please don't hesitate to stop off as you exit today, and I'd love to get to know you a little bit. Uh, Let's pray together. Father, as we study this story about fear, uh, I pray that, God, you would bring our fears to the surface of our minds and our hearts, and that, God, as we see Jesus coming and, and bringing peace and bringing faith that transcends the fear of the disciples, would God, would you allow that same reality to happen for each one of us? In Jesus we pray your name, amen. So as I kind of alluded to in the prayer, uh, this text, this story is really teaching us about fear and what to do with it. Uh, Jesus comes and, and everybody realizes Jesus is the Son of God, and so this story compels us to step out in faith where we might otherwise have fear and then to keep our eyes fixed on Him in the middle of whatever storms We face in life. That's really where we're going to go today. And so I don't really have a big, long intro. I feel like all of us deal with fear so much that it's so relevant we can just dive straight in. You guys don't need me to tell you about it. Let's see what happens as this story unfolds. Let's begin with verse 22. It says, "Immediately." He made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So the story begins with this word immediately, and immediately, immediately uh, tells us that this is happening right after another story. And and so what is it that's just happened? The feeding of the 5,000, the story that we looked at last week. And we can tell through this word immediately and and kind of the action of what's happening right off the bat that that there's urgency here, that Jesus has this need to dismiss the crowds. Now, why does he have this urgency? We, We aren't told, but in John's gospel, it says that Jesus fled because they were about to take him by force and make him king. You guys might remember me bringing that up last week, and so Jesus knowing that he has a cross before he gets his crown, realizes he's got to get out of there. And he flees, he escapes the crowds to get some time alone with God the Father. And he sends the disciples off in this boat, and he goes up onto the mountain, It said, although really it's probably, if anybody's ever been to Galilee, you know it's Really, probably a really big hill. <laughs> and he goes through the hills, and his plan is then to meet the disciples on the other side of the lake. He's going to walk. They're going to take the boat. He's on this big hill. The disciples are, are now out in the Sea of Galilee. For those of you who don't know, it's not really a sea. It's just a really big lake. It's about four to five miles wide. It's, it's very different shape from Lake Washington, but you can imagine it's about twice the size of Lake Washington. And so Jesus is going to go around, he's going to meet them on the other side, but for now he knows he's got to pray. He has got to pray. Now what is Jesus praying about? We don't know, but there are a few things I think we can easily speculate. The first is that Jesus never got a chance to grieve the death of his friend, of his cousin, of his ministry partner, John the Baptist. Do you remember that a few weeks ago? And so perhaps he's wrestling through that loss with God the Father. Or maybe he's recognizing that the time of his own death is right before him, it's drawing near, and and he needs to just get some time with God to seek God's will, to prepare his heart, to ready himself to undertake the greatest, most difficult task that any person has ever undertaken in the history of the world. Maybe he's working on that. Or maybe he's deliberately prayerful about the situation that he realizes must be unfolding with the disciples out in the boat on the lake. Or maybe he's just gotten done doing all this ministry, he's exhausted, and now he needs to center his soul on his relationship with God the Father. He just needs to rest in God. It could be any of these things, it could be all of these things that Jesus is praying about, but what we need to pay attention to is the fact that Jesus, one, needed to be alone, right? Jesus also needed to pray. Jesus needed silence, Jesus needed solitude, and Jesus needed to pray. And in this way, Jesus sets the example for us, for what we need in our lives, but also For what our lives should look like, I wonder do we pursue times of quiet? Do we get away from the noise of life and the distraction of all of our responsibilities that are vying for our attention every moment so that we can go and be alone with God our Father? If not, I trust that it's probably because we don't know God our Father like Jesus knew Him. We might not believe that he's good, and we might not feel like we can approach him. We might not see him as one that we should turn to in prayer, or perhaps we, we might not believe that we need him, that we need to turn to him and, and spend time with him in silence and solitude and prayer. Or Perhaps we just find ourselves far too busy, and it's just simply not worth our time to pull aside and spend time with God. have got all kinds of much more important things that we're filling our calendars up with, right? Now, if we don't spend time alone with God our Father, we shouldn't wonder why our hearts wander. Amen? We shouldn't wonder why our faith kind of dwindles over time. It's because we've taken our eyes off of the object of our faith. And there are plenty of other things in our lives that we fix our eyes on in lieu of Him, things that we are far too eager to place our trust in other than God. Meanwhile, our Father, God Almighty, He's patiently waiting for us. He's inviting us to come to Him and cast our cares upon Him because He cares for us, like First Peter 5 says. And so our question today as we begin this Will we take him up on this offer? Will we take God up on his offer for us to come to him? Consider that even Jesus did. And the story continues. When evening came, he was there alone. Jesus was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land. It was beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. It was like a battle was going on. And in the fourth watch of the night, he—that's Jesus—came to them, walking on the sea, walking on the lake. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, "It is a ghost!" And they cried out in fear. I say, so Jesus—he's been praying all night, and you can imagine Jesus is very, very tired. Earlier that same day, remember, he had healed the sick, right? He had fed the 5,000, and as this night is dragging on, he becomes aware of what's going on with the disciples, that the disciples are in danger. Perhaps Jesus can even experience some of this weather, this wind. Maybe there's some rain going on, or perhaps it's been revealed to him through his prayer time that the Holy Spirit's telling him the disciples are in danger and you need to go to them. And now this has been going on for some time, and it's the fourth watch of the night, it says. And the fourth watch of the night uh, is basically a system that the Romans had. It was a way of dividing up the day. They had uh, the day and then the night divided into quarters. So the night lasts, the fourth watch of the night, or sorry, the the entire night lasted from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And so the fourth watch of the night was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So as far as we can tell then, that means that the disciples had been stuck in this storm all night long for perhaps nine hours. Just think about that. Try and put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. And it said at this point, they were a long way off from the land. This phrase literally means many stadia. 600 feet is a stadia. And so the the disciples are probably miles out into the lake, maybe in the middle of the lake. And that's pretty scary already, Because their boat was, it says, being beaten by the waves. Now, this word translated as beaten, it literally means tormented, okay? Their boat was being tormented by the waves. And it's a little odd that Matthew would have used this word that would be translated sometimes as tormented because it's a word that's generally associated with spiritual attack, like from a demon, okay? And so there may be a sense in which either they thought this was a spiritual attack or the disciples were actually experiencing a spiritual attack in this boat on the water, which clues us into why their reaction was so great when they saw Jesus walking on the water. You might have thought, well, man, these guys are a bunch of wimps. Why are they so scared? But again, put yourself in their shoes. If you had gone through a night that was already full of a terrifying situation, this storm, for nine hours, you were fearing for your life, you're wondering if some evil spirit is out to get you, you haven't slept in over 24 hours, and after having helped Jesus feed upwards of 20,000 people, we estimated last week as we talked about that, if you were in that situation, you would be terrified too, and you would be crying out in fear that you've seen a ghost, amen? Okay. As we know people don't walk on water. Maybe ghosts walk on water, <laughs> but people don't walk on water. So how, do, how does Jesus respond to their fear? In verse 27, it says, immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus calms their souls. You know, as we read this story at this point in this story, it would seem that the waves were the most tumultuous thing in it, but no, it was their souls. Their souls were the most tumultuous thing in this story, and Jesus doesn't calm the storm, not yet. He calms their, the, he calms their souls, and he actually lets the storm rage on. You know, we go through storms in life and we cry out in fear and our souls really want Jesus to come and actually calm the storm. Amen? But sometimes he lets that storm rage on and instead he calms our soul in the middle of it. Anyone hearing me? Anyone go through this? How does he calm their souls? He tells them, take heart, or some translations say, have courage. Why should they take heart, he says, because it is I. The disciples can take courage. They don't have to be afraid because Jesus is there. Everything is going to be okay now. And you know, when we're stuck in a storm, We can take courage. We don't have to be afraid because Jesus is there. He's present with us. We know everything is going to be okay in the end. And here's the thing Jesus, if we can put that last verse up for just a moment, Jesus is doing more than just making a statement about the fact that it's Him and it's not a ghost when He says, It is I. He probably has something much, 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 much bigger than that in mind when he makes that statement. The Greek here is ego a me. Ego like the waffle, okay? And then a me. Yeah, I want, I want to just have some fun with you guys. Say this with me ego a me. One more time. Ego a me. And it literally means I am. That's what Jesus tells them. He says, take heart. I am. If you've read your Bible, that phrase feels really familiar. And when Moses, in the Old Testament, he came face to face with the living God. He fell on his knees. He was in awe of God's holiness and his majesty and his power. And he asked God, what's your name? He wants to know who this God is. And God answered him, I am. He revealed himself with this name I am and he and he did it to show a few things. One, he is eternal. I am. I'm eternal. He he used this name to reveal that he is self-existent. I am. He, he's not dependent on anyone or anything else for his existence. And when he said, I am, he did it to show that he is the same yesterday and today and forever, that he never changes. And when he used this name, I am, he used it to show that he is the one who made the entire universe and holds all things in his hands. All of that is wrapped up in this name, I am. There's no one and no thing greater than the great I am. There is no end to God's glory. There is no limit to his power. Can I get a little bit of an amen from some of this stuff, guys? Thank you. He deserves our reverence. He deserves our praise. He deserves our honor. Amen? Come on. There we go. And Jesus says, that is me. Jesus says, the great I am is me. Amen, thank you. I didn't even have to solicit that one. Why should the disciples take heart? Why should they not fear? God is with them through Jesus. When you're in a storm in your life, why should you take heart? Why should you not fear? God is with you through Jesus. You know everything's going to be okay in the end. Do you believe that? Because I know most of us, when we're going through a time, when we're faced with our fears, we don't believe that. I hope we can change that through this story. So Jesus calms their souls, but the storm continues to rage on. In verse 28, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat. And he walked out on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. When my family was in Europe recently, we went to St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. And we had a great tour guide. There's this old German lady. She's a real character, kind of quirky, a little cheeky at times. And, and we were walking through the church, and, and we walked past this bronze statue of St. Peter. Here's, here's a picture of it. Some of you guys have been there. You've seen it. And, and as we're walking past there, she says, if I've committed a small sin, notice the language there, if I've committed a small sin, I like to go up to Peter, place my hand on his foot, and confess my sins to him, and he'll forgive me. She's just really kind of happy about this, almost like, it was almost a little funny to me. I don't know if she's trying to be funny, but this, this old German lady's telling us the story, and I'm, I'm about to start laughing. I just thought it was so unusual and strange. And she, of course, mentions that only the small sins get confessed to, to St. Peter. For the big ones, she go to a priest right? Now, the problem was for, uh, for over 700 years, they think, they don't know how old the statue is, many, many, many people have done exactly what she, decided, what she described. And so Peter's foot began to wear down over time. You can kind of see that he's hardly got toes left there. And during COVID, they actually they, they barricaded it off so you can't go and touch his foot anymore. And so our tour guide was just devastated by this, right? I mean, who's she going to confess her small sins to? Her brothers and sisters in Christ? No. Uh, sorry, a little judgy there. But, <laughs> but she said that she, she kind of she goes over there and she kind of whispers to him by the stanchions and, and she knows that, she, that, that Peter hears her and, and forgives her. So why am I telling you this story? Uh, The point is, is that to her, and I would say in a lot of places that we experience in Europe, Peter is like a god. I mean, go and confess your sins to him. And yet in this story, we see that Peter is just a man. He is such a man, right? He is so much like us. He's fallible. He's misguided. He's... Got this big heart but small brain syndrome, right? (laughs) In fact, I would say that's probably a lot of what we love about Peter, right? We can relate to him. He's so bold and yet he's so prone to messing everything up. He's just like you and just like me. I like like to say it's ready, fire, aim with Peter. He doesn't do things in the other order. (laughs) Ready, fire, aim. Now, I wonder if that's like you. Are, you. are you more of a ready, fire, aim person? Or are you, maybe you're the complete opposite from Peter. You spend so much time mulling over something and thinking about something that it takes weeks for you to get something done. Whatever the case, I'm sure you can at least identify with the humanity of Peter. And especially in this story, this is one of those moments where Peter's humanity really comes out. It's a bit of a roller coaster, really, if you think about it. Because, remember, they've been tormented by this storm all night long. They haven't slept. They're exhausted. They probably think they're seeing things when they see the silhouette of Jesus. You know, it's dark out. Maybe he's got the moonlight lighting him up. But Peter goes from the depths of fear to the heights of faith like that in an instant. He's so eager why? Because his eyes are fixed on Jesus. He's ready. He's ready. And so he gives Jesus this challenge. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, what is Peter doing when he says this to Jesus? What's going through Peter's head? I mean, It sounds a bit like this is Peter's way of testing whether this really is Jesus. Like, if it is you, he says, but if that were the case, that's an awfully strange way to test that, right? Because now Peter's risking his own life to test that. That's, that doesn't really make sense. So what's going on with P- in Peter's head? I think that the glory of Jesus was overwhelming to him, totally overwhelming. He's seen countless miracles over the time that he spent with Jesus, healings, calming the storm back in chapter 8, the feeding of the 5,000 just the day beforehand, and now Jesus walking on the water, and it's clear Peter wants so badly to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, right? And here's where we cannot just identify with Peter, but we can also admire him, because We want to catch a glimpse of what Peter's seen, right? Don't don't you want to see what Peter has seen? Don't you want to have this kind of faith where you would step out into a storm? Don't you want so badly to be with Jesus and to be like Jesus? Amen, church? And so we might look at how things turned out moments later and go, man, Peter, you're kind of a loser, right? Because... It's easy to stand on the sidelines and look at how he fails and just kind of point a finger at him. But when it comes to faith, friends, that old adage holds true. That it's better to have tried and failed than to never have tried at all. And in fact, following Jesus actually requires failure. Have you ever thought about that? It requires failure failure because being a disciple means learning and growing. And while we do learn from our successes, praise God, we largely learn and we cannot learn without failure. And so Peter steps out in faith and it's incredible. And he he actually walks on the water. I even thought about calling this sermon Peter Walks on the Water just to kind of mess with some people because like we tend to think about it with Jesus. But all Peter has to do when he's, he's standing on the water. All he has to do is take his eyes off of Jesus for one moment, and that fear takes over again. His eyes drift down to what's in front of him, the crashing waves, the storm, and he remembers that fear that he had right before he saw Jesus, and that fear then sucks him in, literally, right? He begins to sink. And so what happens when we take our eyes off of Jesus, friends? We begin to sink. Our fears take over. And so I want to explore with you for just a few moments what kind of fears you're dealing with right now. Or maybe what kind of fears have you dealt with a lot in life? What, what ways do the storms of life suck you in and you begin to sink. And the reason why I want you to consider this is because you're going to continue getting sucked in if you can't learn to fix your eyes on Jesus in the midst of those storms. And so what, what fears do you have before you? Maybe your storm is work-related, and you know you're you're watching your coworkers getting laid off left and right, and you're going, oh boy, I, I'm next. This is coming for me. This storm that you're having in your workplace, it's sucking you in then to the fear of failure. Like, what if I don't outperform the rest of my team? What if I don't work enough hours? What if I'm not smart enough? What if I'm not productive enough? Or maybe even deeper, am I even worth anything? And over time... As you get sucked into that storm, your eyes, they they drift from Jesus and you become more competitive than you do compassionate in the workplace. Start treating people like barriers to your success. Or maybe your storm is finance related. You're watching this market dip or that market crumble or this retirement account shrink and it's sucking you into the fear of need. Like what... What if I don't have enough? What if I can't pay my bills? What if we lose our house? And over time, that storm, that fear of, that that, that storm of, of things crumbling around you begins to take your eyes off of Jesus. And as the fear of need consumes you, you become stingy, not generous, and over time you might even become greedy. Or maybe your storm is relationship-related. You're getting older. Maybe you thought you'd be married by now. You're, you're lonely. You're seeking a relationship with someone else. Or, or perhaps you're in a relationship with a person, not a romantic relationship, where you're just not being honest with them, a parent or a friend, and, and you've been sucked into the fear of man. Like, what will people think of me? Do people like me? Or if they, if they knew the truth about me, would they still love me? And over time, as you get sucked into the fear of man, your eyes, your gaze is off of Jesus. And you get exhausted from walking on eggshells in every relationship that you have, trying to keep up the charade that you are someone who you aren't. And you become so preoccupied with yourself that you actually neglect loving others. Or maybe your storm is more of an existential threat. Last Friday at Q&R at the bar, we were talking a bit about this as we were discussing technology and kind of the state of the world. This existential threat, because sometimes, it, if we're honest, it seems like all those dystopian movies we've been watching for decades are starting to become reality, right? Amen? It's like George Orwell 1984 is our life, um, or Blade Runner or something like that, right? And and, and I mean, you think even about the war in Israel that started just this weekend, right? There is so much impending doom that we're surrounded by. And it might be world wars. It might be politics. It might be what's going on in our nation, even socially. And you kind of get sucked into this fear of ruin, right? And over time... As you do, your eyes, they're off of Jesus. You become so consumed with what media companies and people on social media are promoting that before you know it, you actually believe what they say, that you've got to be very afraid that there are criminals out there and they're coming to get you, or be very afraid the other side is going to win this election and then they're going to ruin the world, or Be very afraid, there are nukes coming your way, right? The existential threat is great today. And you can begin to believe that as you get sucked into the fear of ruin. What is your storm? What is your fear? What are you fearing today? And what I want to highlight as we begin to kind of land the plane here, practically speaking, Peter had plenty of reason to fear. Can we just agree with that? Yeah? Peter had plenty of reason to fear. He he wanted to follow Jesus, (laughs) and then he gets out there and he's like, whoa, what am I doing? (laughs) What, What was I thinking? People don't walk on water. These are the most intense waves and wind I've ever experienced. He stepped out in faith, but he took his eyes off of the great I am, and he began to fear. He took his eyes off of the one who calms our fears. But see, the story doesn't say that the storm wasn't something to be afraid of. The story doesn't say that your storm isn't something to fear. The story says that you can rise above the storm if you keep your eyes on Jesus. Right? Faith triumphs over fear. And so... If we've taken our eyes off of Jesus, and if we've stepped into fear, how do we overcome that? How do we step into a place of faith? And the answer is we do what Peter did. We cry out to God, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Because what will Jesus do? He'll do the exact same thing that he did with Peter. He saved Peter from his fears, verse 31 and 32. Jesus immediately reached out his hand. And he took hold of him, saying to Peter, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. All Jesus did was he reached out his hand and took hold of Peter. And that was that. That was that. Well, besides the little, the gentle rebuke that Jesus offered afterward of like, come on, guys, like, you got little itty bitty faith. Did you, how did you doubt me? He says, it was me. I said I am. And to us, he's going, how do you believe your fears when I am? When I'm with you, how can you doubt me? Jesus says. You know, this word translated in English as doubt, it has the idea of trying to go in two different directions at the same time or serving two different masters at the same time. In other words, doubting doesn't make any sense. You can't go in two directions at the same time. You're either moving towards Jesus or you're sinking in the storm because you can't. You can't be divided in two. And so true faith is keeping your heart singularly, focused on Jesus. But notice that despite Peter's doubt, despite the disciples' doubt, Jesus calms that storm. Now, he waits until they're in the boat. He waits until he's sought to calm their, their souls to calm the storm, but he calms it. And just think of it this way. Moments earlier, before Jesus showed up on the scene, their fears owned them. They could not possibly imagine a scenario where that storm was calm. And when we're in the middle of a storm in our lives, we can't possibly imagine a time where that storm has subsided. But when it does, you can finally see. You can finally look back and you can see that Jesus uses storms in our lives as training grounds for our faith. Amen? He uses storms in our lives as a training ground for faith. Anybody ever experienced this? Can anyone testify? Come on. Anybody have you been through a storm, and, and once you make it through to the other side, you're like, "Oh, sorry, Jesus. I'm sorry I ever doubted you. I can't believe I did, because hindsight is 2020, right? Can I say 2020 now? Has it been long enough? hindsight, sorry, that's a terrible dad joke. Hindsight is twenty-twenty. 20, 20. Once, once the fear has dissipated and you can look back on a situation, you can actually begin to see it more clearly. You can see Jesus again. You can see that he was there all along, that he was with you through it. So what storms has Jesus brought you through? I want you to think about that. And many of you know that one of the biggest storms that Jesus has brought me through was the collapse of Mars Hill Church. I feel like, man, I'd really love to stop talking about that experience. Um, it feels a, a bit like, can, can we just get over it and get move on? And yet, it's, it's, I just have to be honest and be real that that's a part of my story. It's a part of my history, and it's also a, a, way, a way that God has worked in my life. And I often talk about Mars Hill by saying that, all churches have problems, but Mars Hill was a very big church with very big problems, in some ways disproportionate to many other churches. And while I've talked before about ways that I contributed to those problems, I want to talk for a moment about the ways that I was affected by some of those problems. After working there for many years, I, I became obsessed with productivity. Became obsessed with productivity. In that environment, It was easy to believe that your only value was your output. Amen? Some of you have experienced this. You've worked in environments like this, or you've come from families that are like this. Maybe your dad imposed this sort of thinking on you that you are only what you can produce. And so through that experience, I I was sucked in to the fear of failure, and healing came for me some years later uh, through some intensive counseling that I received. I've, I think I may have told this story to some of you before. I was working with a counselor who sat me across from an empty chair, and, and he told me to imagine Jesus was sitting there. And some of you guys are like, what kind of quirky therapy stuff is this? But really, all I was going to do was pray to Jesus and use my imagination to recognize that he was present with me in that moment. And so I did. I prayed. I talked to Jesus for a while about how that fear of failure distorted my identity, how it distorted my relationship with him and with others. And then the counselor said, all right, now now flip it around. What would Jesus say to you? And the Holy Spirit spoke to me in that moment. It was one of the only times I've ever audibly heard the voice of God And he said, I was there. Jesus said, through it all, I was with you. I was there. And it wasn't until that moment, I mean, years afterward, I realized, oh my gosh, I could see his hand. I could recognize how he allowed that storm to rage on to some extent. But he kept on holding his hand out to me even though I was taking my eyes off of Him. I could see He brought me through that storm, and I wouldn't have made it through without Him. So friends, the storms of life are real. They're real. The this, this story is not about how you stop complaining about all your fears. It's not that at all. God loves us enough to, to recognize Those storms are real. But do you have any idea who this Jesus is? Do you have any idea of his greatness, of his bigness, of his power, of his love, of his ability to save as you go through these storms? Do you recognize that he's with you in it and he can bring you through it? Once the wind and the waves finally calm down, the disciples are able to see. They're they're able to see clearly, maybe for the first time in this story. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel that it says that the disciples worshipped Jesus. We're like halfway through. This is the first time it happens. Why does it happen here? Because this is the natural, instinctive reaction to what they've just witnessed. They can finally see him for who he truly is. They finally realize who they're dealing with. They finally realize that this isn't just the Messiah. This isn't just a man, a great man, a great teacher. They realize this is the eternal creator of the universe standing before them in human flesh. Because as Jews, they would have known, there is no way you're ever worshiping a human being. That would be absolutely forbidden. They would never do that. But when they recognized that God Almighty was standing before them in the flesh, that there's no one and no thing greater than the great I am, that there's no end to His glory, there's no limit to His power, they go, I can't help but worship I've got to worship. And so they praise Him. They say, truly you are the Son of God. As we begin to respond together here, I want to prepare you for your community group meetings this week uh, with a couple of instructions. The first is just a set of questions. Where are you tempted to fear and take your eyes off of Jesus? Where have you stepped out in faith and what happened? And then we like to practice a spiritual discipline. This one is just walk on water. Okay, (laughs) I knew we needed to lighten up a bit. No, uh, really pray, pray for each other. You guys have just hopefully worked through some very real fears that you may have faced in life and just spend some time praying with one another and praying for one another. Let's pray now and we'll, we'll continue to respond together as a community. God, we thank you for this word. God, we thank you for Peter even, that he's just a guy we can relate to, and that as he learns, we learn. God, through his failure, would you teach us through our failures to come to you, to keep our eyes fixed on you in the middle of whatever storms this life brings us? Free us from our fears, God. Help us to recognize your presence with us and to trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.